Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before we get into my next guest this week, I want to play a song. Stakes is High by De La Soul. Focal point bringing damage to your borough. Be some brothers from the east with the beats that be thorough. Got the solar gravitation, so I'm bound to pull it. I get down like brothers are found, ducking from bullets, gun control. It's a classic. The lead single from the album of the same name. A takedown of the state of hip hop in the mid 1990s. And the producer on that track was a new guy named JD. Not Jermaine Dupree, the guy who invented Crisscross. Jay Dilla. Dilla is, and I am not exaggerating here, one of the most consequential producers in the history of popular music. His career was brief, tragically. He started working in the mid-1990s and continued until he died in 2006. He worked with artists like The Far Side, Busta Rhymes, D'Angelo, A Tribe Called Quest. His solo album, Donuts, released just three days before he died, was an instant classic. Dilla's music was iconic, genre-redefining. He inspired dozens of other artists, countless imitators, and now he's inspired a book. Earlier this year, my guest Dan Charnas wrote Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. Charnas has made a career out of covering the history of hip-hop. In Dilla Time, he writes about Jay Dilla's life, but he also writes about how Dilla revolutionized the genre. I'm thrilled to have Dan Charnas back on the show to talk about one of the great hip-hop artists of our time. Let's kick things off with another classic from Jay Dilla's catalog. This one features Jay singing. It's a cover of Donald Byrd's Think Twice. Dan Charnas, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Nice Honor. to meet you in real life. Indeed. So, around the time that that album came out, 20 or so years ago, I have this very vivid memory. I'm in my dorm room at UC Santa Cruz. I'm watching 106 in Park on BET, which was the pop hit video countdown show on BET. AJ and Free are the hosts. And their guest is Pharrell from the Neptunes. And I remember, I think that they talked about if they could visit any city, what city it would, it would be. And they all agreed on Miami so readily as though it was the most evident thing in the world. I remember that. And I was like, Miami, I mean, Miami seems cool, but why everyone is so on the same page about this. They're all so confident the answer is Miami and it's obvious. And then uh, one of them asked Pharrell, well, who's your favorite producer out right now? Who's your favorite hip-hop producer out right now? And Pharrell says, JD. And Free looks at him and says, Jermaine Dupree? And Pharrell very graciously says, no, JD from Detroit. So why was Pharrell probably now we can say the most successful American pop music producer of the last 25 years. Mm. Why was Pharrell so excited about the productions of a guy that the hosts of 106 in Park hadn't heard of and just thought he must really love Jermaine Dupree, <laughs> the guy who produced Jump for Crisscross? Cross? Well... Questlove, Amir, often says that uh, J.D., J. Dilla, is the producer's producer, the musician's musician's musician. And 
for me, you know, putting myself in Pharrell's uh, shoes for a minute, it is just, I think that J.D., J. Dilla, is the master of his craft, the master of his instrument. And his instrument was the drum machine. And his craft was the art of sampled composition, right? Nobody, in my mind, did it better than him. I don't like best lists. I never call him the best producer of all time. But I I do feel that folks like Pharrell, who were also master craftspeople, really, really looked up to JD because he saw things and heard things that even they didn't. And that's the whole game when you're doing sampled composition. You're finding bits and pieces of sound on records uh, in other places and juggling them into a, a completely different collage, but doing it with a certain musicality. And that was something that, that JD, J. Dilla excelled at. So it makes perfect sense to me that he said that. I think as good a place as any to start is with the drum machine, right? Mm-hmm. So what was the tool that JD used to make beats? And why was that important? Why was it different that he did it with that and not with uh, some other drum machine or with Fruity Loops or <laughs> right. whatever else? Well, just to, to back up, I think for the audience, uh, you know, sampled music, the idea that, that you could put different pieces of different songs together into a collage and make them into a new song, this wasn't a new idea. You know, it goes all the way back to music concrete in the 1940s. The Beatles famously experimented with it with Tomorrow Never Knows in 1966. But it really, the idea of it didn't really come into full fruition until a DJ named Cool Herc created sort of a turntable juggling technique that he called the merry-go-round in the early 1970s. And really it was about taking the breakdown sections, the instrumental sections of records, and blending them into each other as a musical bed for him and others to rhyme over, to exhort to the crowd over. And And this is a live, we're talking about a live performance technique here. We're talking about two turntables, two copies of the same record, an instrumental breakdown in each one, and playing the instrumental breakdown of one, Mm -hmm. then seamlessly fading it into the same breakdown on the other copy of the record. That's exactly correct. To make a so that you can make a loop, so that you can wrap over an instrumental indefinitely. But we're we're not talking about tape loops being spliced together in a studio yet. We're talking about something on a stage or in a park in New York City. That's exactly right. And really when Sylvia Robinson got the idea that she was going to make a record out of people talking over records, she didn't actually do that. The DJ had to take a seat. She had her studio band, her her you know her session musicians replay the break that the DJ would have been playing. In this case, Good Times, uh, which was the bed for Rapper's Delight in 1979, and that was rap music for the first I don't know five six years. It was just rhyming over replays of these rap breaks. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. Where it began to change was, oddly enough, with a producer by the name of Rick Rubin, who I used to work for. Uh, around 1985, 1986, Rick, when he produced his records, both for Profile and for his label, Def Jam, he began to bring the breaks, the actual breaks back into the recorded music. Well, not back, but it had never been there before, right? Only, as you said, in the parks. So instead of just little scratching sounds, he would run an entire 21 seconds of trouble funk onto a record and have to perfectly time it with the met- metronome, the click track. This was also incredibly hard and it required a lot of dexterity. What democratized this whole thing was the invention of the sampling drum machine. And one of the first sampling drum machines was made by Emu. It was called the SB12, 
which was followed quickly thereafter by the SB-1200. Then another company, Akai, created a rival drum machine, the MPC-60. So it were these two drum machines, the SP and the MPC, that really defined what hip-hop composition would be for the next 10 years, you know, from even more than that, you know, from the late 80s through all the 90s. Those were the two main machines that beat makers used to create these incredibly complex compositions. And, uh, you know, JD, starting in around 93, 94, became a part of that, you know, that that brotherhood, so to speak. So if you think of a legendary hip-hop producer from that time, like Pete Rock or something like that, they're taking this drum machine that's essentially a little computer, a little mm-hmm. solid state computer, but with, without much storage. And he's making, you know, they reminisce over you or whatever, mm. using these, you know, the recording abilities of this drum machine that can record little clips of sound. Right. And sometimes larger clips, right? That was the whole thing. When Roger Lynn, the inventor of the MPC, when he first debuted his machine at a consumer electronics show, somebody came up to him and said, hey, can you get extra sampling time on this? And I think he said, yeah, you can boost it from, you know, uh, 15 to 30 seconds. And the, uh, you know, the interested party said, well, can I get more than that? How much more? I don't know, one minute, two minutes? And Roger Lynn thought, why would, that's crazy. Why would anybody need two minutes of sampling time? Lynn himself. Because sampling previously had meant four bars or two bars of a song or mostly a sound, like a drum sound. Yep, exactly. A kick drum or a a snare drum sound. But what producers like Q-Tip and Pete Rock and Large Professor and eventually JD were doing was not just importing sounds, but importing the silences between those sounds, what we call groove. It was about getting the human timing of these elements and also the human uh, deviations, right? And again, that's a bad word to use when we're talking about something that's very intentional. But that was the game, to really bring the soul into the machine. And that is what late 80s, early 90s hip-hop innovated. So when we say drum machine, we might be picturing a synthesizer that makes drum-sounding sounds right, artificial drum sounds. But what we're talking about are, are machines that enabled the the composition of already existing sounds, right? Exactly. Taking existing sounds and, and putting them into, into a, a rhythm, into the structure of music, yeah. right? And, and not just rhythm and noise, so to speak, but really what Q-Tip of A Tribe Called Quest, beginning in around 1990, and Pete Rock and JD excelled at, was bringing in harmony and melody. They had real musical minds. And a lot of their sample sources were from jazz records because that's where the richest harmony is. And that's when it became, uh, you know, really exciting. And the tradition of crate digging, you know, really became uh, a widespread phenomenon. Going to record stores for hours on end, looking for records to sample, looking at the musicians who played on those records because you know and you trust and you you feel like there, you know, might be some good good sounds there because of who they are and what they were able to do. So, what is an example of a record from just before JD hit the scene? What's an SP twelve hundred? composed mm. song, maybe something that Q-Tip produced for A Tribe Called Quest or something, or, you know, Pete Rock or whomever. I think it's one that you mentioned earlier, They Reminisce Over You by Pete Rock. That was composed as all of Pete Rock's songs were on the SB-1200, sometimes with an outboard sampler for a little bit more sampling time. Bits and pieces from the drums from James Brown's, uh, I believe, Say It Loud, then also bits of harmony and ambient sound from Tom Scott's remake of a Mama's and Papa's song today. 
beautiful, ethereal, magisterial, just a, a wonderful uh, composition and almost the, the apex of what that kind of composition could be. Let's hear a little bit of it. This one's a girl. Let's name a Pam. Same father as the first, but you don't give a damn. Irresponsible, plain not thinking. Papa said chill, but the brother keep winking. Still he won't down, you will tear out your hide. On your side while the baby make us slide. But mama got wise to the game. The youngest of five kids, hun, here it is. After ten years without no spouse, mama's getting married in the house. We have more to get into with Dan Charnas after the break. When we come back, we'll talk about Dilla's illness and death and the immeasurable legacy he left behind. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Dan Charnas. He's a writer and lecturer who specializes in the history of hip-hop and rap. His latest book is called Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. In it, he covers the life, work, and death of Dilla and why his work still influences countless musicians today. Let's get back into our conversation. I want to play one of the first records that was a hit for JD, and we're talking relatively speaking. This was a single that became a a beloved classic hip-hop record, but hit even seems pretty straight. It had a popular music video. Uh, this is a song by The Far Side called Runnin' from their second album. And The the Far Side had had this sort of game-changing first record called Bizarre Ride to the Far Side. You know, huge record. It was like, oh, L.A. can do something other than make gangster rap. Like, this is this crazy, alternative, funny. Mm-hmm. And their producer quit. So they're trying to figure out what their second record is. And they end up being connected with J.D., he makes this beat and they're recording this song. What is it about this song that leads the members of the far side to get into an actual fight, a physical punching fight in the studio? Because JD is doing something very foreign to hip hop. He is using that first technique we talked about, playing freehand. He's the kick drum is basically the thing that delivers that downbeat that we count on in popular music. Usually comes, we feel it on the one and the three. But it's the boom of boom bap in rap music. Exactly. Boom, boom, boom. Right. And in hip hop, we count on those things to come in very regular places. But JD's kick drum was not coming in where we expected it to and coming in where we didn't expect it to. And that unnerved Fatlip, who was one of the four members of the far side. So while the rest of the band and JD went to go get some food, they came back to the studio and they found out that Fatlip had not only changed the kick drum to something that, re-recorded it, to something that was straight, but he had erased JD's work, (laughs) like the kick drum track that was already there. And, you know, the far side were legendary for their in-studio throwdowns. And this provoked yet another one. And JD has to sit there and watch as his favorite crew fight over his rhythm. But Trey from the far side, who was the advocate, sort of the main advocate for JD, he said, we're going to keep this the way you originally had it. That's your signature. And I remember Trey telling me this story and thinking that is so astounding for that vocabulary to be used, signature, for a hip-hop producer, and and so vociferously. And it really, I, I, I think it, it really, in many ways, because it was one of JD's first professional experiences, certainly his first trip to L.A., it showed him that what he had was special and that what he had was worth fighting for. Well, let's hear the irregular kick drum on uh, the Far Side's run and produced by uh, Jay Dilla. really hear it especially in the bananas mm-hmm. like there's a there's that little bit of life to it there's a little bit of the unexpected in there 
that is really what what JD brought to us in the mid 1990s. I had heard that song and I had heard the Tribe Called Quest records on which uh, JD collaborated um, as a producer. But I think the first time that I really became aware of him as an individual and as a kind of musical force was the Slum Village album, Fantastic Volume 2. Mm-hmm. And Slum Village was uh, is a rap group from Detroit where Jay Dill is from. Tell me where this record came from and what mattered about it. What was special about it? So Fantastic Volume 2 is really the first full body of work that JD produces using that third technique, the displacement technique, the where this way of relating to time, this third time field, Dilla time, really becomes the central aesthetic of his work. One of the hallmarks of that sound is the rushed snare, the snare which carries the backbeat in our popular music, um, comes in too early, right? Again, where you don't expect it. And so suddenly it develops this long, short pattern with that downbeat. But the hi-hat, which is like the metronome, is completely straight. So I describe it as sort of, um, it's like seeing a train derailing and riding itself uh, repeatedly. Or it's like, you know, some drums are, are basically telling you, well, this tempo is going to go 70 miles per hour. But then another drum comes in and says, well, we're only going to go 55. And that tension keeps happening. And so he uses this technique over the course of this album, which of course has plenty of other redeeming qualities, uh, showcasing again his um, really dual harmonic sense of bright and melancholy together. His use of instruments in his sample sources like the Fender Rhodes, his incredible, the whole group's incredible emceeing in which Jason Moran has a, has a, a phrase for this, facing the beat. They face the beat in whatever song they're in. If the drums are going a boom, boom, tap, a boom, boom, tap, JD is going to come in with some kind of rhyme scheme where he goes, you know, you can't, can't stop, you can't, can't quit, really engaging rhythmically in ways that a lot of MCs don't because MCs are often focused on the content, the words, what they're saying. What Slum Village delivered was incredible rhythmic information which to me is just as as valuable. So I actually think that Fantastic Volume 2 is one of the most important albums in popular music of the last hundred years, for sure, because of that innovation, but also incredible anthemic songs that are, for people who are JD fans uh, and fans of hip hop, the song Fall in Love, you know, incredible, Get This Money, which was on the Office Space soundtrack, just a really important album that, is made in 98 but doesn't come out until the year 2000 because of uh, corporate restructuring and, and all of that. Well, let's hear a little bit of Fall in Love from Slum Village's album Fantastic Volume 2. Ladies loving my music is like some trying to grip up my mic like it's a run around the corner to pick up the new but the mic like it's a joke Fall in love with the music like it's a hole Put down your mic, you lost your whole world You take it too seriously like it's a gamble The other thing that I remember when I heard that record was about the sound of the record. And I don't just mean the way the, the beats were composed. I don't just mean the swing of it. But I, I remember thinking like, this is somehow simultaneously sounding like the, you know, great boom back records of five years previous that I loved, whatever Q-Tip or DJ Premier or whatever was making, it had that earthy, organic quality, you know, dusty old record store quality. But it also sounded like it was shiny and from the future. <laughs> like it sounded electronic and organic at the same time in a way that blew my mind. I like could not wrap my head around how it could be both of those things. Mm. So what was it about those productions that managed to make it feel like machine music, make it feel like something from the future, 
and also feel like something from the dusty past. I think that's such a great way to put it, too. And I've never articulated it that way, but that feels absolutely right. I think the samples, right, bring in the historicity for me. But I also feel, again, what JD is doing with that rushed snare, it is a very inhuman thing. So that's also like nails on chalkboard for me when people say, oh, Jay Dilla, he humanized the drum machine. Well, actually what he did was he created a sound, that uh, a rhythm that no human had ever made before. And that was what was so thrilling. It was from the future, but that's where our future comes from. It comes from Detroit. It always has. Yeah, I mean, it took 10 or, 10 or 15 years for, you know, super genius jazz drummers to be able to recreate that feeling. Right. So... The thing that I remember on the message boards of OKPlayer.com where <laughs> rap producers would argue with each other yeah. about drum machines and stuff and, you know, Questlove would come in and post six paragraphs of text in one paragraph <laughs> about <laughs> some sound ex exciting sound he had just heard. Uh, the thing that I remember people flipping out over about J.D., was the way that he chopped and flipped samples. Mm -hmm. So all this stuff about the way he composed rhythms was there. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I remember people being was like, when people would figure out what the sample was and they say, how did he get that sound out of that sample? Yeah. So what's an example of a record that he made from another record where the transformation was particularly distinctive. Oh my goodness. To even, well, one of my favorite examples of JD's dexterous sampling. I'll give you two examples. The first is a straight rhythmic one, right? Um, he took a song by James Brown called King Heroin, which is in waltz time, three, four time. And he turned it into four, four time. It's amazing. But, you know, if you know how to do it, it's pretty easy to do. It's just that he's the one who really kind of pioneered that feel, made it look easy. One thing that he did was with a, a, a song called Dream Suite by this jazz fusion group from the early 1970s on Columbia Records called Dreams. Dream Suite is this long song. I think it's 14 minutes long. And JD, he was a bionic listener. He just listened to things. He didn't needle drop as we often do as producers. Just, oh, try to find one little thing. He would have the patience to listen to an entire 14-minute song. And somewhere in the middle of the song, he finds this little beautiful descending bell figure. And it's going down, like the whole time. What he does is a beat that ends up on a song uh, by Buster Rhymes called Enjoy the Ride. And he completely recombines those sonic elements into a new harmonic progression. have not been uh, what I like to do for my class at NYU when I teach my Dilla class is to deconstruct certain Dilla beats and uh, and they're hard to do this one was impossible for me I don't know how he did it but it's incredible and it's more beautiful than the original song to me just what he saw and heard in it I, you know I could talk about this stuff for days he really was the again the master of his instrument and his instrument was the sampling drum machine Let's hear a little bit of what might have been the biggest hit that uh, J.D. J. Dilla produced, which was a, a record for Common called The Light. This is a pretty straight song for J.D., but what's special about it? What do you think mm. made it pop? When I worked for Rick Rubin, he had a phrase that he liked to use when he really liked something that was just so bad and so wrong that it was great. You know, like when the Ghetto Boys used Sweet Home Alabama <laughs> in one of their songs, just turning this sort of neo-racist song on its head, right? He would say, that's the worst, but you, it meant the best, right? 
So the light comes from, uh, the base of it is this Bobby Caldwell sample, uh, a song called Open Your Eyes, which From is, an album unironically titled The Cat in the Hat. Right. So the beat is that sort of almost 60s British uh, crotchet rhythm that the Beatles use. Dick, 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 dick. Very, very straight. But then on top of that, he puts this super syncopated beat from uh, an Ohio Players record, or actually it was a Detroit Emeralds drummer, you know. Super, so he's got super straight, conflicting with super syncopated. And then JD, for the chorus, like for the verse, Common is, he writes this epistolary poem to a long distance lover. And it's beautiful. And for the chorus, James is just scratching in pieces of Bobby Caldwell's vocal that it's so natural to hear that. But to me, that's the worst. It's like this ugliness contrasted with this beauty and this straightness, uh, you know, colliding with this syncopation. My God. I mean, is that, that's the best hip hop to me. That's what makes that song so musically interesting to me. Let's hear it. It's important that we close to the most high, regardless of what happened on him, let's rely. Now, I will also say this about that record. I was, I think, 19 when that song came out, something like that. Went to some common shows at the time. I'll just say, girls was flipping their lids. <laughs> Absolutely. People were flipping out. <laughs> but it's that, it's that beauty that's full of these weird surprises, right? Mm. It's that it is a beauty that catches you a little bit on the wrong foot. That's exactly right. The wrong foot. It is a corporal music, but a different way to relate to the body, you know, a different way to move your body. JD didn't articulate his rhythmic sense the way that I'm articulating it. He basically just said, it's the way I bob my head. So all politics and all rap music are local, right? And JD was from Detroit. He was working in LA and New York and other places, but he's from Detroit. Mm. Detroit is famous, of course, for Motown, for soul music, for soul jazz, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. It's also famous for techno and ghetto tech electronic music, less famous for rap. So what is it that J.D. grew up amongst that led him to this very unusual fusion of sounds? Sure. Uh, J.D. was a child. He was born in 1974, so he's really a child of the 70s and 80s Detroit. Now, I just want to say, when I say less famous for rap, all apologies to the insane clown bossy. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. So... He is growing up with the ghosts of Motown, which left Detroit two years before he was born, uh, growing up with the ghosts of the jazz scene there. And when I say ghosts, I mean literally the neighborhood that gave us all of those Motown uh, musicians where all the nightclubs were, where, you know, Elvin Jones and other jazz players played. It was eradicated to build what? A freeway. And so he grew up in this land of the broken grid. And the land where machines were taking over uh, the jobs of uh, folks like his father who worked the Ford line. So Detroiters had a, an affinity for the machine and also a very tense relationship with the machine. And that is what births techno in the mid to late 1980s. But Detroit was already defiantly weird. They had an incredible DJ by the name of uh, Electrifying Mojo who played uh, an ecumenical mix of music. He played rock. He played soul. He was the first, one of the first DJs in the country to play Prince. And, oh, and I have to mention P-Funk was there in, in the 70s and the 80s as well, sort of articulating a very Afrofuturistic, you know, update of what James Brown on one hand and Stevie Wonder on the other had been doing. So James grows up in this milieu, 
Very little of it is hip hop oriented. Most kids are listening to techno and doing techno dances like the JIT. You have to sort of go to certain smaller spaces to get your doses of hip hop. I mean, it's not until the early 90s, early to mid 90s, that hip hop is the kind of ubiquitous that we think of it yeah. as being now. I mean, I'm 41 years old and I grew up listening to KMEL in the Bay Area and it wasn't until I was 25 that I learned that other people my age, not that old, you know, I'm not the original hip hop generation, I'm 20 years from the original hip hop generation, but like other people grew up in major cities that didn't have rap music on the radio. In incredible. I mean. <laughs> until, you know, Hammer and Vanilla Ice or whatever. Right. That's exactly right. And black radio in Detroit wasn't even playing, you know, hip hop as it was really not much of it anyway in the rest of the country. So what happens is a young clothing designer from Detroit, Maurice Malone, he goes to New York to sort of start his career as a designer, experiences a really cool, groovy hip hop club in New York called the Soul Kitchen and comes back to Detroit to start his own version of it, the Rhythm Kitchen. That becomes the place that the people who we begin to know and love in Detroit hip hop begin to coalesce. He will expand the Rhythm Kitchen into something called the Hip Hop Shop. That is where a young white rapper named Paul Rosenberg will meet another young white rapper named Marshall Mathers. Paul will become the attorney for Marshall and, and manager for Marshall Mathers, who we know now as Eminem. It is where JD first gets his start and begins to produce local artists. JD really is actually before Eminem, the first real hip hop, you know, hip hop uh, figure to come out of Detroit. But once Eminem comes out, the floodgates open and you get Proof and you get D12 and you get Royce the 5'9 and you get Guilty Simpson and you get Fat Cat and obviously Slum Village and Elzai. Detroit has its own flavor, which is actually, um, it leans a bit more to the East Coast than the West. When did Jay Dilla get sick? Jay Dilla returned home from a quick tour, DJ tour of Europe in January 2003, felt very ill, and he'd never been quite that sick before. His mother took him to the hospital, and the physicians at the hospital found that he had almost no platelets, which is the element of the blood that allows for clotting. And so if he didn't get a blood transfusion, he could literally, if he bruised himself, he could bleed out. The question was why, why was this happening? And so they ran a battery of tests on him and diagnosed him with this very rare blood disease called a TTP. And TTP is a blood clotting disease that essentially makes the blood clot too much in the small organs of the body. And it had already ravaged his kidneys. So he needed to go on dialysis. And this diagnosis in early 2003 changes his life. Um, the way that having to have regular dialysis changes your life, the way uh, having to have regular blood work and transfusions would change one's life. And he is still in Detroit, but quickly his closest creative collaborators, Common and Kareem Riggins, who are already in Los Angeles, suggested he move to LA uh, for the weather, for better doctors, to be plugged in more to the business, to sort of revitalize his career as well, um, and just to be around people who loved him. Because L.A. loved him in a way that no other place really did. One of the things that people talk about who are music makers, who admire Jay Dilla, is that like he had this thing that, you know, maybe his sometime collaborator Madlib is also known for, which is like just a, a capacity to just only make music, just make music and 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 make music. And it seems like knowing about how finite your life is gives that quality in a person an extra charge. Yeah, he was, J.D., from the moment he had disposable income, 
uh, he was a brother with Madlib in that sense, is that he all he really wanted to do was stay in that basement and make beats. He didn't want to go on tour. He didn't even want to go to New York and mix records. He just wanted to dig for records, make beats, take a break, go to the strip club, maybe eat something and come back again. He wasn't for for a guy who was so corporal in his rhythms. He really was not always in tune with his body. But yeah, one of the reasons that JD ha- J Dilla has such a a community of followers is that his life, the latter part of his life, especially the last 2 years that he's in Los Angeles 2004-2005. What is one's disposition when you see most of our lives we're 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 chasing time, right? We see time stretching out before us in an endless, inchoate, cloudy thing. But when you get a diagnosis like JD's, suddenly you see the wall. <laughs> it's the end, like like in the Truman show when he finally gets the wall. It's coming at you. And how do you respond to that? Do you curl up into a little ball and not do anything? Do you get depressed? his solution was to just be himself, to keep working, to redouble. That's an incredibly inspiring story to think about what one's life is in the face of that. I think that is a big part of the the overall myth and story of Jay Dilla and why people are so cathected to him over the years. More talk about Jay Dilla with Dan Charnas in just a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm going first. It's me, Jackie Kasian. Man, she's always this bossy. Uh, <laughs> I'm Lori Kilbarton. Uh, we're a bunch of stand-up comics, and uh, we've been doing comedy like 60 years total with <laughs> both of us, but we look amazing. And, uh, out. We drop every Monday on Max Fun, and it's called The Jackie Laurie Show, and you could listen to it and learn about comedy and learn about anger management and all the things. And Jackie is married but childless, and I'm unmarried but childful. So together, we make one complete woman. Is that just what's going to end? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And we try to make Kyle laugh just like that and say, oh, my God, every episode. It's a good job. Jackie and Lori Show, Mondays, only on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Dan Charnas. He's the author of the new book, Dilla Time, which covers the life and work of hip-hop producer Jay Dilla. Let's get back into our conversation. So tell me about Donuts, because Donuts is the record that, you know, for me, based on the point where I was in my life, I was no longer, I was a grown-up adult (laughs) by the time that happened. You know what I mean? I was no longer an adolescent obsessed with every sound that I heard, right? I was, I still love music and everything. Right. But to me, Donuts is like a coda, right? It's like a, it's a grace note on the end of an incredible career. Mm-hmm. But I think in a lot of ways, it is the record that defines his legacy as capital G genius, Jay Dilla. So tell me where that record came from. Donuts came out of a series of beat batches that he did in LA. So the first beat batch he did when he was visiting a legendary record store called Aaron's Records, filled with all these sort of old 60s soul sounds that ended up, he called it Dill Withers. People also refer to it as as the Motown tape because it had those sort of um, really groovy 60s soul sounds. After he gets out of the hospital, Cedar sinai that first time in early 2005, he starts shopping at Rockaway Records in Silver Lake with Peanut Butter Wolf and Mad Lib. And very quickly, he turns around another beat batch, which he calls Donuts. Very different from anything he's done before. Not quite lo-fi, right? It doesn't, doesn't sound like dusty cassette grooves. It is high fidelity. But they're like little compositions, very busy, almost too busy for an MC to rhyme over because they're filled with jagged vocal samples that to some people seem to be saying something. In, in some way, people listening to them begin to think that he is actually speaking through those samples. This is just a throwaway for him. Like it's just another beat batch. But 
the folks at Stones throw C's on this this CD as something that they can put out for him while he's convalescing, and they're hoping that he's going to make it through this period. Sadly, Donuts, alas, would come out three days before Jay Dilla dies. It comes out on his birthday, February 7th, 2006, and he dies on February 10th. But it's this record, combined with the news of his death, that shows up in places that J.D. has never shown up before. The New York Times, for example. Kay Sene writes a obituary for him there. And all of the parties that are, you know, sort of set up to um, promote donuts then become these memorials for J.D. And donuts is the thing that people are, are, are clamoring to get as his sort of last message. That makes a lot of sense to me. And there is genius in it. It's just a different kind of genius than the earlier period. Does that make sense? Yeah, let's hear some music from uh, Jay Dilla's Donuts. This is Don't Cry. What I wanted to add about that particular song, Don't Cry, is that a lot of folks like Amir, Questlove, saw Donuts almost as a, a manual that he was leaving behind for others in the sense that here's the sample, right? He plays that song that the sample is from, a long bit of it, and then he shows you what he can do with it. And he does that in that order over and over again on Donuts. And then you have people sort of looking for messages. His longtime uh, living girlfriend and the mother of his youngest daughter, Joylette, one of her friends rings her up uh, after James dies and Donuts comes out and says, you know, he says your name on there. And so she listens to this song and there's this uh, record that he samples from The Temptations and George Kirby, the comedian George Kirby. And... One of the temptations says, okay, George, but it sounds like, okay, joy. <laughs> That's exactly how it sounds. So folks are, are hearing themselves in this. They're hearing messages, don't cry. I can't stand to see you cry. He had broken up with Joylette, but perhaps he wanted to give her something on his way out. I think he knew. I think he, he, he had a sense of his mortality in that last year, especially. Jay Dilla didn't make a lot of hit records. He made some minor hits. And his music is, you know, one of the biggest influences on the world of contemporary jazz music, um, or at least contemporary American and, and English jazz music. Where else do we see the ripples of his work in music that, you know... <laughs> We might hear on the radio or whatever. Sure. Well, it goes in waves, right? There was a big wave in 2015 of music that really played in and out of Dilla time. Two great examples of this were uh, Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. And I credit Terrace Martin and Taz Arnold especially with bringing these elements in. And also Robert Glasper, who was brought in on a, a number of things. I would encourage people to listen to Taz Arnold and Terrace Martin on past episodes of Bullseye, along with Robert See, Glasper. Go ahead. You know the time. <laughs> Bullseye knows the time. Mm -hmm. It's right on target. So that album, at least six or seven of the songs go in and out of Dilla Time, which is... You know, in the same way that, like, when we listened to Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, it went from straight to swung back to straight, except now we're doing it with Dilla time, with this third time feel. This feeling is unmatched. This feeling is brought to you by Adrenaline and Good Rap, Black Penalty, Bar Cap. We don't share the same synonym, far back. Been in it before internet had new acts. Then halfway across and underneath the world, this group from Melbourne, Australia, Hiatus Coyote, quite uncategorizable, but I suppose you could call them pop or funk or soul, but they put out an album, Choose Your Weapon, where half of the songs go in and out of this Dilla time field, what they call a jilted time field. Because again, 
at that time, there's no name for this thing. My personal agenda as an author and a journalist was to really try to put language to what this was, to really position it in history. And so, more recently, um, a British group, the 1975, that a song called Sincerity is Scary, uh, one of their singles, which is completely in Dilla time, but also very much influenced by the voodoo sessions and Electric Lady. So we hear it all throughout our music. Uh, you know, anything glitch, right, is in some way a descendant of what JD was doing. And we must understand that it's much easier now to do the kinds of things that JD did back then and to replicate them because now we have digital audio workstations with graphic user interfaces where you can see the waveform, like you were saying earlier, and shift it over to the right a little bit and we know how that sounds or shift things a little over to the left to make them come in a little earlier. The drum machines that we spoke of, the SP and the MPC, did not have these controls. They had little tiny LCD uh, screens uh, and LED lights. It was a whole world uh, that was cultivated through experimentation and patience and craftsmanship. Well, Dan Charnis, I'm always really grateful to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for writing this great book and uh doing the great work you've done on hip-hop and also on Mise en Place. Thanks for representing for Mise en Place in your last book. But especially for your hip-hop work, uh, it's always great to get to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jesse. Dan Charnas. His book, Dilla Time, is great. You can buy it at your local bookshop or online. Nobody writes about hip-hop like Dan. About a decade ago, he put out a book called The Big Payback about the history of the hip-hop business that might be the best book about the history of hip-hop ever written. Dilla Time is an incredible chronicle of an incredible artist. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where today at the metal shop across the street from my house, they were banging on something. We had to wait a little while to start recording. I do not know what they were banging on. You know, they're just doing their jobs. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for sharing it with us along with their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there, follow us, we'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.